This podcast is brought to you by Apex Motor Park. Want to get out on your bike this weekend? Head over to Apex Motor Park on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and visit one of the best tracks in the country. Private hire bookings now being taken. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Live Motocross podcast. And we've got a special one for you this week. Well, one I've dragged Roger back on. I think we're just going to have to have him permanently now. Um, Roger, say hello. Hello. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I I was uh, lost not doing one last week. I had to find something else to do. So uh, it's great to be back. I thought you'd you'd sacked me. uh, Thankfully, I'm back and uh, looking forward to this one. (laughs) <laughs> no, couldn't do that to you. Um, so, do you want to do the honours and intro our special guests? Yes, indeed. Um, the last podcast we did was with uh, Lawrence Spence, one of the old school, old time riders. Well, now we're bang up to date with one of the hottest prospects that British motocross has had for many a year. Welcome to the show, Adam Sterry. Hello, guys. Well, hello. And uh, yeah, nice to be here. Um, my first podcast in this format, so... <laughs> um yeah i feel privileged to be invited on and hopefully we can discuss a few things and yeah have fun that's it it's a little bit different to normally being sat face to face at race meetings and stuff at the moment isn't it <laughs> yeah just a little bit <laughs> <laughs> um so we wanted to kind of get you on the podcast adam because we've got a load of questions for you ranging from uh nations gps um youth riding training all sorts of stuff um so really we want to start off with what your how did you get started with the with the bikes were you sort of a bit older going into it or did you start really young how did it how did it go for you um so I was quite normal I started my first race when I was six but Mm -hmm. um normally uh riders that get to my level have a father that did motocross or an uncle or whatever but my, my dad never um never did motocross he just he just rode a bike on the on the road if you wish bit like a, a bit of a hooligan um, <laughs> but yeah he just bought me a quad we had quite a big garden so I just ro- dr- rode that round till it ran out of fuel um, <laughs> then he got me a bike when I was a little bit bigger and did the same thing so mm-hmm. entered the local race um I'm from North Wales so my local clubs were the Cheshires and Red Dragons yeah did a few of them started doing well and um, yeah, then did the British Championship on a 50 and mm-hmm. it started from there. So, yeah, a bit of a different path than than people who have had fathers that have rode. And, but, um, yeah, I guess when you just enjoy doing something and you end up being quite good at it, then um, you can get where you get. So, This is it. Roger, you're still there? You're shuffling yeah. papers around? Yeah, no, no, yeah, I'm still there. So uh, when, did you, when did you – okay, you, you started doing the youth stuff. Um when did you start getting serious and going to training schools and people like and uh, getting some help and that developed? Yeah, so I've I've been with Rich RMJ Academy since I was I can't remember when I had my first first training day with them, but um, yeah, ever since I was little, I've had a coach, but. Uh, my school was completely fine. I I always went to school. I did all my school. Um, I took my contract in. I could have whatever time off I wanted, but mum and dad were a bit strict. They wanted me to go to school, so I had mm-hmm. the odd Wednesday off, if that, um, Friday to go to the races. Um, so I I did all the school, and um, my first year British Championship, I was still in school. So, um, yeah, 
I did my first year professional whilst doing school in the week, which is uh, quite interesting. But um, did you find that quite difficult, or to balance it out? Yeah, it is. But when you when you I was fourteen at the start of it. I think when I first went on to two fifty, maybe maybe just fifteen into my first British Hampshire, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. But when you're that age, you just I I just loved riding. So um, obviously my physical was probably a little bit down. I was young and it's my fit, but it's my first year in the British. So I just used to turn up at the weekend, try my hardest, and uh, yeah see where we ended up and actually had quite a successful year that was with uh par honda mm-hmm. and uh yeah good bike good team and uh, started me off on my professional career so what if you were to give some advice to um a youngster starting or starting to sort of um, do some of the bigger races now you you'd advise to get a coach um because clearly it made a big difference to you and you, you, we've had this conversation before and sometimes you can get hooked up with um, making the bike go faster and stuff like that. But um, yeah. a coach worked for you. Yeah, definitely. I think I think if you look at any top-class sports or most top-class sports people, there's always a coach like in football or uh, cricket or whatever. There's, there's always a coach. And I think mm-hmm. if you try and do it on yourself, it's – it's you can't really see what you look like or the program's not there. You, you've got to think about it all yourself as if you have a, a coach. It just makes life so much easier. And especially now how the sports develop so much. Like if you look at riders like Prado who have come up and the, the techniques change so much compared to when, for example, I'll give an example, Brad Anderson. If you look at the complete opposite riding styles, I think the sports develop that much and the bikes have developed that... I think it if you start from a young age and get them techniques down, and uh, I think that would be a big advantage when you mm-hmm. concentrate the on the basics, learn, learn the basics first. Yeah, but I'd also say when you're younger, you know, I get asked that question what you asked me at the start quite a lot. What what advice would I give? It would just be to have fun, honestly, because I see I see a lot of dads putting so much pressure on their, their child when they're six, seven years old. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I'm around that coaching environment with, with, with RMJ kind of, they also train little riders. So if I'm there sometimes riding, I see it and, uh, yeah, that some of the kids get hammered and I just think when you get older, they're just not going to want to do it. Just, just enjoy it when it's, when you, while you're young, like the physical mm-hmm. side of it isn't really that important as long as you just ride to have fun and you go, you get a coach and you enjoy getting coached. I'd say you just leave it at that while you're young. No need to put so much pressure on your child when, and then the fun gets taken out of it. Like I, I also seen it when I was growing up mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, uh, um, Roger, you'll remember Scott Elderfield. I, I know Scott very, very well. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I kind of think that was a, a bit of an example of that. So, yeah, um, he keeps getting brought up a lot in this podcast. Like three out of four episodes, his name oh, really? has been brought up. Yeah. Oh, yeah if you if you put if you put um, motocross wheels on a dustbin, Scott would ride it. He, he, could, <laughs> he could ride anything. That boy. But yeah, Scott Scott's a few just years. What he wanted to do. That's yeah. just what he just wanted to ride a bike. You, you his dad would just say, you know, here's a bike. And he drags something out of the shop. And he'd ride it, uh, you know. And the boy is so natural; he, he'd ride anything. But, but when you get to a certain level, as I, I was just going to come on now, you said about enjoying yourself uh, when yeah. you're a 
you know, you're, you're a kid coming up through. When you suddenly go in the adult ranks, then it gets serious. And a lot of riders can't cope with that. They, they love turning up, racing, you know, probably winning the local championships or whatever. Suddenly you get to a British championship round and you're struggling to qualify or finishing 25th. Um, yeah, of course. When, when you, when you, how, when how do you cope with that? Yeah, when when you're a child, you don't really, you don't think about any of that. You don't think about money. You don't think about pressure. You just you get on your bike and you just ride it. But then, mm-hmm. of course, when you leave school and um, some people, yeah, some people still need to work. But in my case, it becomes straight away my job. Then that all of a sudden the pressure and the money and the 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 team that have hired you to do a job that all comes involved and. Um, yeah, you start thinking a lot more because you're an adult, and uh, yeah, the pressures get a lot more. So sometimes, even now, yeah, it it feels like a job, but then actually, when you sit down and think about it, you think, well, this is actually a pretty cool job. So um, sometimes you need to like give yourself a bit of a a check and say, yeah, actually, this is what I love to do. This is what I, I'm doing my dream job as a job. But some days it can be it can be very high pressure, not very fun. Um, when you turn up at Lommel or something and there's ruts <laughs> from one corner to the next corner and it's minus five and it's completely pouring down and you've got to go and do your, your motos. Believe <laughs> me, that's not very fun. But um, yeah, like I said, it, for me, it beats sitting in an office. So To be honest, that, that's why I always have respect because the top level guys, everyone sees them getting out the big motor home and you have you know all the kit and the bikes and everything that goes with it. Yeah. But, but in January, when it's rain and you've got to get up in the morning and do your motos and go running or whatever, then when they're yeah. money you've got, you've still got to do that. Which is why, to be fair, I always have respect for guys like Jake Nichols, Elliot Banks Brown, people like that who've got their family have got lots of money. Yeah. At the end of the day, no matter how much money you've got, you're the one who's got to pound out the laps. You're the one who's got to go running. Um, yeah, of course. And motocross is, yeah. is skill based as well. You can't, you can't just buy you, you can't just buy your way to to being good in motocross. You can you can pay to be on a good team, but you that doesn't cut it in motocross. It's not like uh, a sport like Formula One where if you're in the best car, you're going to win. It doesn't work like that in motocross. You still need to put the still need to put the work in. Still need to be really extremely fit, and uh, yeah, it's not all about the bike. So that's kind of what's good about motocross because it's so difficult. That's what makes it so interesting to me. There's so many different variables. That's why I think it's the most difficult sport in the world. There's so many different variables, and it's so difficult that it just it it's it's like almost a proud moment, especially in the MXGP class now with how stacked it is. Um, it's a bit like a proud moment to be involved in something so difficult that's some that's so competitive, and uh, mm. that's what gets me training every day and making sure I need to be better than the day before. So it is, it's that, but you must have a belief in yourself and your own ability to actually motivate yourself to go through all that as well. You you must have that self belief. Yeah, of course, you need to believe in yourself, otherwise. Yeah, if you don't believe in yourself, you might as well not do the training. You might as well not go racing. Um, mm. I think every every GP rider believes in themselves at some to some extent, and uh, yeah, like I said, I think that's critical to be able to do, be able to be good at motocross. So you're in, you're in the adults. Um, done the British Championship, British ex British champion. Um, yeah. How how are your thoughts on the British series and any thoughts to coming back to that in the future? 
Um, so, yeah, 2016 British champion. That was one of my um, life goals, if you wish, to win a British championship. And um, that was a bit of a, a bit harder than I would have would have liked. I don't know if you remember that year, Roger. Or um, yeah, yeah. Go on, carry on. <laughs> so I, I ended up breaking my arm in Qatar at, at the first round of the World Championship. And that, that was, you did that in qualifying as well, didn't you? Yeah, that was it. Yeah, so it was my first year doing full GPs. Um, just finished third in the in the European Championship the year before with Steve Turner Racing. Didn't you have your um, family out there as well coming out to see you? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was, there was, it was that on that horrible, like, it was really a single tabletop, but... People were jumping from the single down the tabletop. But if you come up short, you was landing on the on the takeoff of a jump. So if you come up short, you was it was like a brick wall. And um Frandis was the only person to jump it from the inside. And I'd messed this corner up twice and being my first year in the MX2, I was all excited, you know, free practice, time practice, <laughs> wanting to do a good lap time. Um I made a mistake again, like third lap in a row in the corner before, and it sent me to the inside. Um, so I just went for it from the inside, but there was a few break, few braking bumps on the takeoff or acceleration bumps. I just didn't get the drive. Nose dived into the thing, but didn't crash. I carried on because I wanted to finish the lap because I was like two corners away from the finish. Went over the next jump, and I just t- I took my left arm off because it was just it was just like seized up, like couldn't move it or. And uh, I landed it. I landed, went straight into the pits, and pulled up to Dad and Rich. And he was like, "Right, don't look at your wrist." Obviously, the first thing I did look at my wrist. Oh no! It was like an S shape. That was it. Um, so yeah, that, the recovery wasn't too bad from that. Actually, I had an absolute horrendous ordeal in the Qatar hospital. Um, we won't go into that because that's pretty graphic. Um, <laughs> and uh, it involved four people pulling my arm back together with no painkillers oh nice um, then they put me to sleep and did it because um i couldn't they physically couldn't <laughs> pull it apart um yeah got back got that all sorted had that had 11 screws and a plate put in there and like four weeks later missed the first round at ling but luckily for me um a few of the top riders like uh stephen clark he had a dnf in one race i think because of a bike problem um so yeah i didn't lose that many points but i I was still away behind second round was my first race back at canada rights uh ended up going like seven nine or something and clarky went one one um so i'm even further behind and then yeah pretty much won almost every racing round from that point but it, it was made even more difficult by i crashed in lommel gp went over the bars and the bike burnt me don't know if you remember that, Roger. I yeah, I, do, I was yeah because yeah. I was I was going to talk to you about that as well. But so uh, yeah, carry on that story first. Yeah, so it was a, you could crash a thousand times and it not happen like this. I don't I don't know what happened. I just went over the berm and went over the bars and the bike landed on top of me. Um, but I was this is probably the scariest thing that's happened actually to me. But I was just stuck under the bike and the back tailpipe. Like the bike stalled, but my shirt and my neck brace and helmet was all stuck in the back wheel. <gasps> and my arm was through like the back of the shock and the, the the tailpipe. And it was just burning my right bicep. So I could feel it, obviously. And after about 30 seconds, 
I couldn't feel it and I just could not get out. So I was screaming to the people. Luckily, there were some British fans. I know I know who one is. Uh, they ripped the fence up and they crawled under. But I was probably under there for about a minute, say, or maybe just over a minute, but it just oh felt like God. forever. But it was burning my arm and I knew the feeling went from my arm, so I knew, um, yeah, that's not good and, and I don't want it to burn my muscle. So I... I would kept grabbing sand from the floor and I was with my left hand pushing the exhaust pipe with that's on rubbers. They're on rubbers so they can move a little bit. So I would push the exhaust pipe to take it off my arm, but obviously it was burning my hand. So I would hold that until I could physically take the pain in my left hand and then let it go and it burn my arm again. So I just kept doing that until I got out of the bike, got back oh on, went straight to the medical center and I didn't realize how bad it was. I just looked at my arm and seen seen a burn. Got to the medical centre. Ended up getting rushed to Antwerp, which is qu- quite far away from Lommel, like an hour and a half or something. Um, I went sh- straight into. They treated me there. Drove all the way home to Liverpool because there's a burns hospital in Liverpool, not far from my house. Went straight into theatre there, and was in hospital like two weeks. Um. And if you're afraid of needles like me, having a burn in hospital is not ideal when you don't like needles. Because I think I was having like seven or eight needles a day. Big oh ones as God. well, like blood clot ones, stop your infection. And then after that, I had to go every single day to get it um, rewrapped, rebandaged. But while we was while while I was in the hospital, they normally take the graft from 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 your backside but I said yeah I want to ride I've got a chance to win the British Championship can can you not take it from somewhere else so they took it from my quad instead um, so yeah lucky I said that because two weeks straight away after the after when I did it in Lommel I rode like the mummy <laughs> at, at Preston Docks and ended up going 1-1 so took the red plate and that gave me the one point lead going into the last round of Fox Hills where where I was able to win the British Championship. So a bit of a mad year, but we got it done. And I guess that's what made it sp- even more special than if I just won it easy, you know? So so you've got a high packing threshold, obviously. Um, I would say so, yeah. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't like blood or, or needles, but... I get, if you was there, I guess you wouldn't you wouldn't know. I'm quite good at hiding it, but really don't like them too. But pain, I could pain I can deal with, but um, blood and needles, no thanks. <laughs> okay, so moving on again, um, the European EMX 250 series. Yeah. Um, twice third in that, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Fourteen and fifteen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then when you probably room with a shot of winning it you you started the season really well and probably were the main contender for it you got moved up early into mx2 um yeah so how, how do you feel about that do you think that was in hindsight was that uh, so, a mistake so, to move up or, or not uh no because i did my fit i did my fit i did my first grand prix in argentina luckily um one of my favorite tracks uh, i think jake or or Frossard, or somebody was injured. So at the time, they were riding 350s, so I could just take an engine to Argentina, and and it was the same frame and stuff, and then I could ride MX2, um, 
which I ended up doing. I hole shot two right at the qualifying race and almost the first moto, took the lead in the first moto for about two corners in my first Grand Prix and ended up finishing eighth. So, um, yeah, couldn't be happy with how that went. Uh, but like you said, um, 14 was my first year in the Europeans. Uh, no, sorry. Second full year in the Europeans. And I ended up finishing third, which was fine. So uh, 15, I, re- I really wanted to go for the championship, which, to be honest, I feel like mis- some mistakes on my behalf, I should have won the championship. But um, you learn and it's if, buts and maybes. And third is what I finished. So I had the red plate... <laughs> a good few rounds in that championship and um, yeah, it was pretty devastating not to win it. But And then like you said, I ended up going in to MX2 in, in 2016. So yeah. Do you see uh, the European 250s? That, that, I know um, you stream or in front as they are now, take some stick about the, um, the 23 age route in MX2 and that sort of thing. But the European 250s, that is a competitive class and, it's a good grounding for moving up to MX2, isn't it? Yeah, sure. You you need uh you need something like the Europeans um to make that talent progress, you know, it's good, all the teams are there, they can see the riders. Um and a lot of a lot of the teams have riders in the a lot of the GP teams have riders in the EMX two fifty anyway, or one two five. So I think that's a really good system of stepping people up. Um much better than it used to be. Um like just before I started doing Europeans, um, so maybe four or five years before that, it didn't follow the World Championship. And I think now that it follows it, that's a much better system. And um, yeah, I think that's why we've got such good depth now in all the classes. What's your thoughts on the uh, 23 age rule? Uh, I disagree with it. I don't think it should be there. Um, I just think it filters people into MXGP too fast. Like when you look already at the at the MXGP class now and the riders that maybe didn't get a ride this year as well. And then plus next year, you've got Olsen and Ben to go up, up into the class. It's just, for me, I think there should be either be no age rule in MX2 or at least make it higher. Like they should have maybe an age rule in the age rule in EMX 250, like to 21 or 23 or something. And then maybe an MX2 till 25. And then at least if you, you have a good MX2 career, you, you can spend half your career in MX2 and the half of your career in MXGP. As at the moment, it's a little bit in MX2 and 10 years in MXGP if you're a good rider. So I just think the balance would be better if they either scrapped the age rule or uh, made it higher. And some riders are, are better on a two fifty than a four fifty. Yeah. Like I'm sure I'm sure if you give Tommy the option to stay in MX two, maybe he would have stayed in MX two, but um yeah, we don't make the rules, so mm-hmm. we can only abide by them. But that's one rule I disagree with and I think if you ask the majority of riders, I think they'd also disagree with it. And as you alluded, that, that must make things very, very tough. Um, when you move up because the rides are getting fewer and fewer. Yeah. Like, um, I'm sure, like I said, Ben and Olsen have got to move up into MXGP, but there's just so many good riders now in MXGP. There's just not enough spaces. And if if you're good enough, you're going to get a space. I know that, but sometimes there's, there's, it, 
the luck isn't there to people are in contracts and there's not enough factory teams and well that's yeah um you alluded to it earlier though um yeah if you're one of the top top riders you'll get a ride but um you've also uh, up against some of the riders who have got some backers yeah so like people it's your ability to get well. you in the team yeah yeah but but like for, sometimes you can move up and everybody's out of contract and it works in your favor because you can if everybody's out of contract then it's contract year and you're a really good mx2 rider coming up you might be able to get that opportunity but if you if you're if it's your time to move up and everybody's still in contract that there is no option for you to go anywhere so how do you then without paying get on a team or a bike that's good enough where you can then prove yourself and then you can't drop back to MX2 because the age rule and you just sometimes a bit of luck and you, and and your career's over almost if you don't get that mm-hmm. bit of luck which is yeah, which for you though, when, when you look around and you see uh, some of the riders who have have bought their way into teams is that frustrating for you um I mean, not if they're a good rider. I understand it. I, I, it, it, it is motorsport. It happens. It, it happens in all the motorsport. So, um, I, I don't, I don't disagree with it. But it just is what it is, isn't it? I'm, I'm just glad there's not loads and loads of people doing that. Um, luckily enough, it's, it's only a small minority at the minute. But, um, yeah, it is what it is, and we just have to deal with it. So. So tell us what it was. What was it like then? Done the Europeans, and as you said, up to the GPs. How was the first GP? Tell us how uh, what that experience was like. The first Grand Prix. My first ever Grand Prix. Yeah. Um, so like I said, Argentina, um, the furthest one away. Uh, we got on the plane with an engine, or a couple of engines with Steve. I flew with him. What the plane? Uh, had an had- engine? No, you had an engine. Yeah, no, yeah, Steve brought the engines, luckily enough, because when we got to Argentina, they did, I think that cost Steve quite a lot of money to get them engines into Argentina. So um, at one point in the airport, I thought I wasn't going to be able to ride. Um, I can't remember how practice and stuff went, but when it's your first Grand Prix and you're that young, there's just no pressure or anything. So it's so fun to just, you think, yeah, this is what I've dreamed of as a kid, you know. Um, I'm at the highest level. And sometimes you don't think you're going to get to that level. And to just ride with no pressure is unbelievable. And, uh, yeah, like I said, one of my favourite tracks, hole shot the qualifying race, almost hole shot the first moto, passed for the lead in the second corner, passed Sewer for the lead, led for like two corners. Um, I ended up finishing eighth overall. So, yeah, as far as my first Grand Prix went, I couldn't have asked for it to be any better. So, okay, how, how did the season progress after that? You started off on a high. How did it go after that? Um, so, yeah, then there was, then there was some mistakes. Um, and then Jake come back from injury or Frostard come back from injury. And uh, I, I, I did some wildcard Grand Prix that year, but I did go back to the European class as well. Um that was because that was 2015 when I did my first Grand Prix. So yeah. um, my main goal that year was to win the European Championship. And like I said, I finished third. But um, the main thing for that was to get experience. And and the main goal was to win the European Championship and then go into MX2 in 2016. Um, 
but I finished third and ended up going to MX2 in 2016 anyway. Okay, so uh, then you carried on and your last year in MX2, last year, 2019, finished sixth. Yeah, sixth. Kawasaki. And uh, looking through the scores, you had a fantastically consistent year. There was only one race where you didn't score. Yeah, I know, and it was Imola, and I'm gutted about it because... (laughs) I was the only person at that point to have scored points in every moto. And I wanted to do the whole year without um, without missing a race, you know. And Imola, I absolutely can't stand that place. I just think it's the worst track on the calendar, dangerous. And, yeah, I ended up having a, having a big crash and hitting my head pretty hard, so... Ended up not scoring any points in one race there, which was disappointing. But like you said, I finished sixth in the world. Um, the F&H bike was really good last year. Um, managed to get good starts. Um, yeah, highest position of second. I, ju- I missed out on getting my podium that I wanted, but I feel, I feel like a bit of luck on my side and I would have got it, but I missed it. I was close to it a couple of times, but again, it is what it is. Second at Lockett and a third in Belgium and Sweden. Yeah, so um, Czech Republic's one, my favorite, one of my favorite GPs, if not my favorite GP, and uh, I think I finished fifth or something in the first race, and then second in the first race, is there a second race? So I just missed the podium there, and then we have Lommel, another one of my favorite Grand Prix. I always do well at third in the first race, and uh, in the second race, I crashed with my teammate again <laughs> for the second time. <laughs> Um, and I just missed the podium there again. I think we was a one points different or joint on points. Ben just got on the podium. Um, and Sweden, another type of ground that's like Czech Republic that I like. Um, I just missed the podium there as well. I was go- I, I actually wanted to go for the lead on Vial. I was catching him and I just washed the front in one of the corners and um, yeah, it cost me the podium again. But you learn and uh, yeah. Got it that I didn't get on the podium, but um, the nation's made up for that. You just hinted um, about your teammate. Um, tell us, you had a, uh, a couple of uh, incidents with your teammate during the course of the year. I, I somehow uh, knew this would come up in this podcast somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, of course, everybody knows what happened in Germany. I think the whole world seen it. We was the most famous people in, mo- in motocross for that week. Um, yeah. Out of nowhere, just got taken out. So there was some celebration going on to the fans after the finish. So I thought I'll go and see what that was all about. Um, yeah, everyone's seen what happened. It got dealt with afterwards. We're, we're fine now, we speak. I'd, um, so, yeah. When that happened in Lommel, I was a bit <laughs> annoyed again, but that wasn't his fault, really. He just crashed the other side of the jump. I didn't see and I come over, so... Mm. Um, yeah, nothing I could have done about it. Did that motivate you though to uh, to you know what was it like in the team while while this was going on? Um, <laughs> on the moment, it wasn't very good because yeah, as you can imagine, then yeah, it's just not what you want in that environment. Um, we actually stayed together in the same house as well <laughs> in Holland, so yeah, he he moved out of there and. Um, yeah, he didn't come training for for a couple of weeks. He got a big fine, and 
yeah, I think I think uh, he learned from it, and yeah, we, we speak now. You, so came, out with, you came out with credibility, I have to say. Yeah, well, what let let everybody always says like, yeah, you should have smacked him or whatever, whatever. But in that situation, you need to be professional because, like, if if someone tackles Ronaldo in football really hard, they don't get up and start punching the other player. It's mm. just it just doesn't happen like that. Anyway, what was we going to do in the on the middle of that tabletop? Everybody videoing it with helmet, goggles, boots. What was we going to do? We there's nothing. We would have just been rolling around on the floor and looked even more stupid. So <laughs> I said, I said what I needed to say, and I said, yeah, we can go sort it out of the truck. And well, plus he's yeah. half your size as well, so there's only ever going to be one winner there, wasn't there? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's only a little lad, isn't he? Yeah, but yeah. Obviously, nothing happened afterwards, and it got sorted, and we moved on. That's it. Um, so, one thing I want to pick your brains about—we've um, touched on it a couple of times—but the nation um, last year, the nations was what would you say, Roger? A complete washout? <laughs> um, no, no. Do you know what? I wouldn't. Um, Saturday was okay. Sunday. Yeah, I mean, the weather was horrible. And, and yeah. I have to say, credit to the fans sat in those grandstands. Yeah, big respect for that. Rain all day long. Um, fair play to them. But the track was, Adam, you, you know, the track was rideable. And how many other tracks can you think of that would have taken that amount of water? And no, yeah, if we, were, if, we were any, if we were at most tracks in the world, we wouldn't have been able to race, I'm pretty sure. It, we just had so much rain just nonstop. But luckily we was in a, in, a, in a sand track, but that one at Assens, the sand's like, it's weird. It's like, it's like Play-Doh, if you, it just absorbs the water. And I think, I think yeah, like you said, we could, we could get racing. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was flipping hard work on a 250. Um, <laughs> but yeah unbelievable weekend and like you said the fans were incredible and that's my greatest motocross achievement most yeah. proudest moment to date so um yeah tell, unbelievable experience tell us how you felt when you got the call so obviously there was um ben got chose first uh, which was fair enough um there was a lot of discussion going on with mark at the time and and uh we're lucky in Britain, you know, we have we have a good selection of riders we can choose from, especially that have decent sand riders. Like we even got the Enduro rider in and ended up getting on the podium and Nathan's an unbelievable sand rider and and uh but yeah, I got the call saying Ben was in, which was fine. I respected that decision and Mark kept me involved the whole way. And uh yeah, unfortunately in Imola, Ben re broke his hand. So that give me this, the position. But to be honest, there was almost, the whole team almost got wiped out in Imola. Sean had a big crash. I had a big crash. Ben broke his hand. Um, so yeah, it was almost a disaster after Imola, but I got the call to say I was in the team and it was just like, at, at the time it wasn't, oh, this is unbelievable. It was like, right, that's my f- full focus. And <laughs> there comes so much pressure with the nations, you know, it's not, it's not like a normal GP race where if you do bad, it's just you to and, and the team to blame, you know? Here in the Nations, you've got the whole of the UK behind you um, and your two teammates that you'd also let down if you did bad. So 
there becomes a lot of pressure with the nations, but I do, I, I perform my best when I'm under pressure. And um, like I said, I wish I could go back and do that weekend again. It was unbelievable. How did you feel on the Friday when we did the team presentation and you, you're up there on the truck, Team UK and all the British fans there? Because half of Britain was there. There was a lot of British fans there. How did you feel with that? Yeah, like it was just over the, it was just in Holland. So there was a lot of British fans there. And honestly, from the moment I was on my way to the track till the moment I left on Sunday night was just, I had a smile from ear to ear. And it was just, it, like I said, it was unbelievable and um, something I've never done before. And, and uh, it's just an unreal experience to be there in front of all the British fans and to go through the parade and ride with riders that, like from the USA and, and people you don't normally get to ride against, you know. And uh, we all had a house together, me, Nathan. Sean was with his, with his wife and child, obviously. We had, we had a nice house. Um, and yeah, we just went about it and we, we gave our all and the conditions played into our hands a bit. Um, Nathan being a good sand rider, Sean, being, uh, Sean obviously being an incredible sand rider, sand's my strong point. We're all from the UK and it was wet and muddy. So <laughs> um, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't have asked for a better weekend. It was, it was unbelievable. So it's um, you said it was hard work though on a 250. It was, it was a, literally a grind, wasn't it? Yeah, it was it was it was very difficult. Like we didn't have the best gate positions after Saturday, and uh, first moto was me and Nathan, and obviously Nathan's bike broke. Uh, I had a big crash and got stuck under the bike again. That seems to be a, a thing with me. I don't know why. <laughs> um, so after the first moto, me and Nathan thought we'd ruined the ruined it. You know, and I was so gutted after the first moto. It was like. <sighs> Surely not again after missing the podium all year in MX2. And then I was thinking, surely, surely we can't end on a bad note here. So I was out again, second moto, and Sean um, ended up getting third or fourth, I think. And I ended up getting ninth or tenth or something. I can't remember exactly, somewhere around the positions. So I knew that would have brought us back in, wouldn't it? Because France had a bad race. Every country had a bad race that they needed to throw away. And uh, going... Going into the last race, obviously I'm not racing. I'm just in my normal clothes. I just go to watch, uh, watch Nathan and Sean, see where we end up. Not even thinking about the podium. <laughs> um, didn't have anything with me, just in my normal clothes, just in the skybox watching the race. And like the f- watching it on the TV and it comes up with second. And I'm like, what? Like then I was never been more nervous watching a race in my life. <laughs> um, in the skybox with like just hundreds of British fans and I see France catching us um, Belgium overtook us and then I knew it was close between us and France and I could see Tixier got a really bad start and I knew he was coming through the field but then I also seen Paulan's bike start smoking which he says they ran out of fuel but I'm not sure what happened but anyway I'm watching the race France overtake on the scoreboard on the TV it didn't come up but I seen Tixier make the pass that I knew with the points would overtake us so I'm like no not fourth again surely can't be fourth again <laughs> and uh, then it, it panned to Paul and pushing his bike back and the whole VIP skybox just jumped on me and it was yeah I, I ran I straight have, yeah I, I made a bit of a fool of myself there because um, 
I, when I saw that Paul Ann was pushing, I just started screaming, Paul Ann's out, Paul Ann's out. I remember. I've watched it on the TV afterwards and I remember I, I remember hearing that. And um, I was like, I was just looking at the screen like, I, I know we're on the podium, but I need, I wanted to just see the official confirmation on the screen, you know, and the race finished, Nathan crossed the line, Sean crossed the line. I ran to the podium and... Yeah, you should have seen it behind the podium. We was all like little babies. Sean was Aww. crying his eyes out. We was all just made up because Sean, all Sean kept saying was, make sure you remember this moment. I've been trying for, I can't remember how many years he said he's been trying with the nations and he's never got on the podium. So he was going like, you two, your first time you're on the podium. That's all he kept saying. So I think Sean was <laughs> over the moon and um, yeah, just an unreal experience. How was Mark Chamberlain as a manager? Yeah, really good. I can't follow him. Um, good. The tactics was good. We we all he keeps everybody in the loop. We made a good game plan. Um, yeah, I can't I can't um, thank him enough for the opportunity and everything was organised. We had a really nice house. We had good food. We we did question and answers with um, the VIP British people the night before. Um, yeah, I have no complaints. Good team manager. So that's uh, obviously the plan is to get back on the get back on the team again in the future. Yeah, sure. That after that experience, that's that's my goal for this year. Um, I don't know how that's gonna how that's gonna pan out this year with it with everything that's going on. But um, yeah, I'm trying my hardest to get back on the team for this year. And uh, luckily, in, on a four fifty, there's there's an extra space available as on an MX2 bike you're just kind of going for one space but there's two in a, on a 450 so um, yeah I'm working hard to get some good results and hopefully I can be on the team again well, that would be special to be um, I mean as we speak the nation's is due to be at Matley Basin as you know um, yeah. two questions performing in front of your home crowd and, and what do you think of Massively as a track uh, yeah so home GP one of my favourite Grand Prix. Um, when I was leading the Europeans and stuff, and I won there as a European rider. When you go around the track, you can hear the fans, and it's it's yeah another unbelievable experience, and definitely helps you in that situation as a racer. Um, so to do the nations there would be would be unbelievable, and uh, yeah, I just hope I just hope we're allowed to have a, a lot of spectators there if it happens and so we can have that atmosphere and um, I'm sure it'll be a great weekend uh, like it always is at Matley. And Matley has a track. Uh, for racing, I I would love to go there and practice there. It would be like my favourite track to go and practice on. Racing's kind of difficult. Um, it is a good racetrack, but I prefer more um, like the likes of Czech Republic, Lommel, something a bit different i don't really like i'm not really a massive fan of like loads of grip uh deep ruts um like perfect ruts if you wish if they're deep and technical i don't mind but ones that are like really grippy and perfect flowing it's not kind of, it's not my type of not my favorite type of ground so um but like i said to go there practice unbelievable one of my favorite tracks and it is one of my favorite grand prix because it's my home grand prix we were talking before the show, though. You, you'd like to see a GP at Hawkstone, wouldn't you? Yeah, definitely. I think that would be unbelievable. Uh, local race to me. Raced that since I was a kid. 
um, ex-GP track, many great memories of GPs there in the past. Um, I think, like I mentioned before, I think it'd be potentially the busiest GP that we've ever had in the UK. I think it'd bring the audience of people more up north, the, the twin shock audience, the old school, more old school fans of motocross audience, the people who maybe go to Farley and mm-hmm. also the, the, the normal fans who go to Matley. So, um, hopefully in the future they could, they could maybe sort something out there, but I don't know whether it's possible or not. Um, a lot goes on behind the scenes that people don't realize and, the stuff that they need to take the Grand Prix round all over the world now is a lot. Is a lot. So, um, but like I said, I'd love to see a, a, a GP there, and that'd be unbelievable. Well, never say never. Yeah, never say never. Hopefully, um, yeah, it'd be nice. Even it? if I'm retired, I reckon I'll get a re-entry if it happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you do realise that um, sometime in the future you're going to have to ride at Farney Castle with the vets as well. I get asked every year now, like a couple of my sponsors um, have 500 and stuff, but yeah, that's another race I want to do um, in the future. Of course, that looks unbelievable. I've never actually been there. I've raced Farley as in the British Championship, one round we had there one year. Um, but to see that Farley weekend, I always see photos and videos and people always tell me that's the best motocross weekend that they have. <laughs> And I'm like, surely better than Matley when the caravans are on fire and everything like that. But I guess oh, uh, <laughs> it's the most fun. It is the most fun by a country bar. Maybe maybe that's just an older people's thing, Roger. Oi, oi, oi. <laughs> maybe maybe the younger people just like setting caravans and fireworks and pit bikes through fire and that at Matley and fire more of the around the campfire with the. Uh, <laughs> Okay, right. As long as we know where we stand. With a gating or something. Right. Okay, right. Okay, as long as we know where we stand. I, hope I definitely want to go to Farley. It, it does look really good, to be fair, and I only hear good stories about it. So, yeah. Hey, what goes around comes around. Just remember that. I will get the chance. <laughs> Have you ever ridden a 500 two-stroke? I've, I've, I've rode a Neil Prince's factory 500, I think it is. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right. When I was on par Honda, we did go to a track and he had a couple of old bikes there. And I'm not an expert on old bikes. Um, I'm a bit new school for that. But I did ride one of his. I'm sure it was a 500. Um, But yeah, I was 15 at the time uh, thinking, what, how do you even ride these things fast? (laughs) Because I'd... It would be quite an experience to try and ride one of them around Matley because on, on jumps, I just don't know. It's so difficult to jump one of them things because you give it a bit of power and it wants to, fl- want you, it wants to fly you off the back and you shut off and it's just nosedives. So it's just, I, d- I don't know how they used to do it when you watch videos in the past, but um, that was a good experience that I'll always remember. Uh, riding one of them i would like to one of my one of my personal sponsors has got a kx 500 uh i don't know what year never even started off that every time i go there just i'm just looking at it and think i'd love to have a go on that you know but um yeah i'm sure i'm sure it's been started up and you wouldn't appreciate me having that thing on the limit There's one for the, on the bucket list for you then, so uh, we look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, definitely. That's one race I definitely want to do. 
in the future. So, okay, so, back- sorry, so carry on. Uh, jumping back a little bit to um, GPs and bits and bobs, obviously this year has been mental with what's going on in the world. Um, but the new GP calendar, do you think it's going to be difficult for teams and stuff logistics-wise to get in there? Um, I think the calendar's quite good, actually, the new one. Yeah. I think the way that they've done it with three rounds in Latvia, three rounds in Lommel, a lot of rounds in Italy... I think that makes it easy for the teams. I think yeah. I don't really agree with the flyaway ones still. I think I don't know if they'll happen or not. Mm-hmm. But I just think for this year, it's obviously cost the teams a lot of money. Sponsors, sponsors, bikes haven't been sold. Sponsors yeah. haven't who sponsor the teams' businesses haven't done as good as they usually do. Um, so I think just like a European-based championship, like most of the rounds are, mm-hmm. um, would be better. And uh, that's kind of what they've done. So I'm just interested to see how it works when uh, Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday. Um, yeah. I think I think at Lommel that's going to be a, a pretty heavy week and a half. Sunday, <laughs> Wednesday, it. Sunday at Lommel. So, um, yeah, hopefully they grade it in between. <laughs> <laughs> and also as well, especially if they are limiting spectators and, and that sort of thing, do you think that's going to make a big difference to sort of um, – the, well, it's going to make a difference to the atmosphere, the atmosphere there. But um, in general, obviously, like you mentioned about the nations and, and other GPs, you kind of almost buzz off the crowd a little bit. Yeah, um, and, and I think I think most GPs, like like for example, Steve Dixon, who runs Matley, he mm-hmm. he has to rely on a lot of the fans for the income. Yeah, as the British government, as as we know, doesn't really help motocross in the UK. So, um. Unlike countries like Indonesia and and Latvia, I guess I don't, I'm not sure on the situation or whatever. But a lot of the governments from them countries help help to have the GP there. As mm-hmm. in the UK, we don't have that, so we need to rely on the on the on the fans and the spectators. That that's yeah. why it, it's a little bit annoying when people complain about the price, you know, because yeah, we kind of do. You want a British Grand Prix or do you not want a British Grand Prix? So. Like you either support it or you don't don't complain about it just just turn up there you know it's yeah and it also it costs a lot to even put these events on in the first place so when people obviously are saying about a 25 quid 30 quid ticket yeah and don't see obviously there's got to be trade stands there there's got to be transport for getting all the rigs there and all that sort of stuff yeah so, especially in the uk as well like i bet steve has to has to de- deal with so much stuff with health and safety and yeah more well, on the road just, and access I, I, and fencing and security mm-hmm. and i was just gonna say um I, I was in steve's office once and he showed me a file which was just on Dealing with the local police on the roads and the traffic systems, and that yeah, I can imagine about three inches thick, and, and oh, that was just on the roads. So, so you people don't come. This country is the worst for regulations because yeah. we do everything by the book. Um, as you know, Adam, traveling the world, not every GP does that. Um, no, of course, like a lot of countries are a lot more lenient. Than- yeah, we have to, and Steve has to jump through numerous, numerous hoops just to get the event put on. And there is a cost to all of that. And unfortunately, that is reflected in the ticket price. But um, as you said, Adam, 
what do you want? You know, if you want a GP, that's yeah. If there's no, like at the start of the year when there was no Grand Prix, or when the first original calendar come out, everybody's complaining no Grand Prix. Um, that's terrible. But then also you'll see the same people complaining when the ticket prices come out, saying the tickets are too expensive, so they're not going to go. So I, you can't win sometimes. But like you said, I think it, you don't realise how much goes in, especially in the UK, to run an event like that because of the health and safety and the and the police and the security. And I bet the list just goes on and on and on. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's loads of stuff that we don't even think about either. That in in a lot of other countries which are which get help from the government because. Um, yeah, they, they like to have a world championship motocross race there. So the government fund it like Indonesia or, um, yeah, they, they, they can get away with a lot more, but in the UK where they don't, the government doesn't fund it. The, uh, yeah, unfortunately it has to go on, get on the ticket prices and, and raising the money for the event. And, and to be fair, um, You've got to have some respect for David Luongo and the in-front team this year to put a calendar together at all because with the flight restrictions and countries and that sort of thing because they have an obligation to their sponsors and also to the TV companies to put these races on because um, it's spectators at the circuit is one thing, but TV is king. TV is where the big audiences are and you've got to put something on for the TV schedules. Um, So to put an actual schedule of GPs together at all under these circumstances must have been an absolute nightmare. Yeah, you can imagine organising one Grand Prix. Imagine trying to organise the whole calendar. Oh, I don't uh, envy that job, but, yeah, got to respect them for putting the calendar together. Um, hopefully it all goes to plan. Uh, we haven't got there yet, so um, I hear there's some things about quarantine and that we need to abide by, but... Uh, hopefully it all goes smooth and hopefully we can um, yeah, get racing again so people at home can watch the racing and sponsors can get what they've paid for. And um, Just just return back to normal. I just want to start going back to normal. You know, I'm a bit, I'm over, I'm over the situation that we're in now. I'm sure a lot of people are as well. And, uh, how, how did you cope with quarantine? What have you been doing? Um, so when it first happened, I was a bit like, I didn't know what to think about it. Uh, then obviously it got a lot more serious, and um, I had seven. I had seven weeks off the bike, probably the longest I've ever had off a bike. Just didn't ride. Um, just worked on my physical training, still training. Just uh, got fitter than I've ever been off the bike. And uh, yeah, since we've been allowed to ride again, um, I've been riding. So um, yeah, we're here now. I feel I feel good. I feel good on the bike. Um, because obviously, yeah. you know, I mean, on the face of it, a 450 probably suits you better because, um, you know, you're you're a, a big lad. Um, yeah. So has this actually played as an advantage to you, giving you more bike time before you're back racing? Yeah, you could say that, yeah. 450, I've always looked forward to going on a 450 because, like you said, I'm a bigger guy. Um, like, like last year, I was lining on the start line, you know, next to Prado. He's 20 kilos lighter than me up. On, on a faster bike so off the metal start gate which i don't particularly agree with either um mm-hmm. it's almost impossible to get a good start against him if he's next year it's 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 almost it's it just it's just not going to happen and uh as like when you used to prep your gate a little bit 
you used to, I used to be able to find advantages as in different techniques on different posi- uh, circuits, gate prep, like I've got a bit of OCD, so my gate prep was always 100%, different gate prep for different um, types of ground. Um, as now, we just, we everybody has the same. So almost qualifying on Saturday is almost not as important now either. Um but again, in Indonesia, when it's 40 degrees, we don't have to stand there prepping a gate. So there is advantages and disadvantages. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you said, 450 suits me better. The thing is, I used to ride a 250 like you would ride a 450. But to, to get that extra half a second to a second in MX2 that I needed, I needed to change my style and go a bit more aggressive. Um, especially on a Kawasaki and a 250, a powerful one, you need to rev it, um, which is something I've never really done. So the last two years in MX2, I've, I've had to change my style. Um, and when I got on a 450 to start with, I was riding it a bit like a 250 and it just does not work like that at all. It doesn't, you can't ride a 450 like a 250. So I've almost had to revert back to how I used to ride and, and that's what I've been working on and, and you definitely have to respect the 450 a lot more than the 250 because it can go wrong very fast. <laughs> have you changed your training regime to go on the 450? Like physically? Yeah. yeah. Um, not to start with, but over lockdown I did. Um, I've always been quite muscly. Um, and with that, obviously becomes weight and not as flexible. So... In lockdown, I didn't. I I left the weights and everything alone, um, and I just did cardio and sprints and flexibility stuff. So I've I've actually lost quite a bit of weight, which has ended up being an advantage for me, um, as well as keeping my strength. So um, we'll see. I've been training hard. Um, I've got a bit of testing to do before we go about racing, but um, we'll see in Latvia again. That'll only be my third Grand Prix, Anna. On a 450, so, um, yeah, we'll see. You said, um, sorry, so just a quick one. You said you were a bit OCD on your start line preparation. Have you got any other rituals you go through? Are you that sort of rider where you have uh, your lucky pants and that sort of stuff? No, complete opposite. I don't have anything like that. I don't believe in walking under ladders or walking over free grids or saluting a magpie or anything like that. I don't, I don't. uh, I see, I do all that. I don't do any. I don't, I don't do any of that. I just, I just uh, yeah. Um, I'm just OCD with like making sure everything's neat, and if I do something, I do it 100. percent So, um, if that's gate prep, then I'll make sure I do it 100. percent If that's riding, I'll do it 100. percent So, um, then in my head, I could, I I know I've done it good, and if 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 it doesn't work out, I know I've tried my hardest. So, um. But as far as rituals, knee braces on the left first or in flat, I just I don't do anything. I just um, actually maybe there's maybe there's one one thing which is t- I always check the fuel caps tight. That's it. But that's just because once I was riding around Lommel and the fuel cap come off, and um, <laughs> you can imagine where the fuel went and it wasn't very uh, <laughs> oh, very a pleasant no. experience. But so I just check the fuel caps tight every time I get on the bike. But that's oh, just a habit. No, I could, I could not get on the bike if I haven't done everything left to right. I am one of those people. It's terrible. <laughs> I think I'll, I, I think there's more people who do that than don't. But 
yeah. I've just never done it. I've never done any of that stuff. Like cross my fingers or anything. Or oh I've God, just no! Really I'm done. the worst. I'm the worst. I I do all of that and more. don't you roger if you go shopping in town then roger it's like you're dancing or something when you're walking along (laughs) Uh, it's yeah oh yeah i wouldn't go under a ladder good god no wouldn't do anything (laughs) like that no but i i've it's silly things like like when i go to a race i've I've got um a bag that i carry my documents in and it's falling apart but i've had it my whole career and i would not throw it away things like that (laughs) I've got loads of rituals like that. Absolutely ridiculous. No, I don't have anything like that. I just. Well, yeah, that's because you're young and I'm very old, as you just told me. <laughs> so you're, you're do, you, just... do you actually ride, Roger, at all or not? Uh, I've got a road bike. I've tapped, as Sophie knows, I've got a brand new, picked up a new one last week. So I've got a road bike. Um, I mountain bike. I, every November. I go to off-road Orange in Spain with some mates and we do a couple of days riding up in the mountains. Yeah, but no uh, uh, no motocross. Uh, used to, years and years years ago, did motocross. You don't fancy having a go now? The, the trouble is I, I know I'd get hurt. I mean, I fall off a mountain. Yeah, that, that, that is the problem with motocross. That, that scares <laughs> me because I see, especially at races like Farley, you see guys of my age who are horrendously out of shape yeah as you, well in motocross it's not even the big crashes that you need to worry about it's like all of my injuries i haven't crashed apart from the burn when i went over the bars like I, I broke my finger my wrist my acl and my knee and every time i didn't crash it's just when you don't expect it mm. you just put your foot down or and then that's it <laughs> so from my experience it's not even as you can imagine, over my career, I've had some really big crashes, and I've ne- I've never got injured from them. So uh, it's always the small ones that you don't expect. Just talking about your age, you've just turned twenty-four. Um, so you're lining up. Oh, well, yeah. I'm twenty-four in uh, September. September. Yeah, okay. September second. Like me and me, me and me and Ben are same school year. It's just that he, my birthday September, and his is. February or something, or maybe a bit longer, and he gets an extra year in MX2. So I just missed the extra year in MX2, really. So you're lining up alongside Tony Cairoli, who's ten years older than you. And how, <laughs> yeah. does, how does that feel? Do you, you know, I mean, you, uh, to be fair, I've never really held that age. It's just he's a legend, isn't he? So nine times world champion. That's what goes through my head. Not not that he's ten years older. I'd rather not think he's ten years older than me. <laughs> But that goes to show if you if you stay healthy, you could have you've got a long career ahead of you. Yeah, that 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 reverting back to what I was saying before, that's why with the age rule in MX2, it there's there's not enough years because everybody's getting filtered up too fast. So I've had I've had four years in MX2, and if I was to stay in MXGP, I could stay there ten years plus if 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 the if I did well and the opportunity and the rides were there. So over the next 10 years, how many how many people are going to get filtered into out of MX2, forced to go into MXGP and potentially not have a ride in them 10 years? 
that that's why um, the EMX 250 and this new EMX Open class is so popular because there's a lot of riders uh, going back to that, aren't they? Yeah, but then the only problem with that is there's no, not not really any budget or salary or money to go and ride them classes because everybody wants someone in MXGP or mm. or MX2. No, there you go. Now you can you can bust some myths now. Um, the, the impression a lot of people have got is that if you're riding MXGP, you're earning lots of money. Is <laughs> no, that true? De- definitely not? Um, <laughs> it can be, of course, it can be. Um, and there's there's there, you can make really good money, serious good money. Um, like Cairoli, of course, Paul Ann, um, Jeffrey. Uh, but yeah, there's it's the the difference from there to, to to people you see fighting for the points is the 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 price difference is is yeah you'd be surprised some people well some people even ride for free and uh, yeah obviously uh, you know how hard motocross is and it's not some not something you want to do for free. That's what I say that people just get the wrong impression sometimes um, that there is all this money floating around, but um, in reality. It's it's only the very elite who are who are doing okay, isn't it? Yeah, I mean there is good money to be made, and and in the British Championships as well, you can make good money, but it's only a small percentage that, that get to make that get to make the money, you know. And uh, yeah, not just because you're in their MXGP class doesn't mean you're now earning millions. Um, it doesn't work like that. But of course, there is good money to be made if you ride well, if you get on the podium, whatever. If you sign for a good team, if you have a good year. And uh, of course, the people at the top, Cairoli, Herlins, they are making millions. So there is money to be made. It's just, uh, yeah, just because you ride MXGP doesn't doesn't mean you're automatically a millionaire. This is it. I think a lot of people think the same about the British and whatnot as well, don't they? Um, but moving on, on to the British a little bit, um, who have you got your money on? Because obviously we've got a few of the lads back in the British this year. Who's going to show through? In in both classes or yeah classes. Um, well, I think Conrad or Bass Fasten's a favourite for MX two. Um, you would like to say Conrad is favourite because of the he won the tracks bear. Um, and in MX and MX one. Yeah. Oh no, Jake goes really well. You know, on 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 a domestic level. Um. Yeah. He's got a really good heart. Um, Tommy's got the speed. Uh, Sean's always there, obviously, with consistency. As long as Sean doesn't have inconsistency with a bike problem or something that mm-hmm. ha- that, that hindered him last year. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. And uh, you got Barbashev as well. Mm-hmm. Um, then like Elliot Banks Brown and and the likes of people like that. It's, it's hard to say in 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 MX1 but I think I think the the, the top guys will be uh, Jake Tommy Sean Bob Rushev I, and I don't know if I, I maybe I've missed somebody else but um, I think that you'll see them fall battling most of the time for the win mm-hmm. do you think Jake and people like that um, suffer because they're not doing GPs now do you think their speed um, suffers because of that they're not riding at that intensity um 
there is that way of looking at it, but then you could also look at it as an advantage. Like, um, d- let's not talk about this year, but say another year, um, we'd be so many races down now all over the world. Um, like Latvia one weekend, then Germany and flying and not being able to ride in the week as they can test and ride because they might have two, three, three weeks, maybe even a month in between races. So they, they've got much more time to be fresh for the British Championship. Like if you ride the World Championship, your main um, priority is the World Championship. So um, for example, if round is sand and the British Championship's hard pack but the next round of the World Championship sand maybe you'll prioritise riding sand over the hard pack but and we just don't get, in the GP season you just don't, don't get that much time to ride if I'm honest because when you're coming back from Indonesia you completely destroyed yourself in the heat 40 degrees riding there two weeks um, you don't get back till Tuesday or Wednesday uh, and then you've got to ride the British Championship on Sunday at, and you've just rode the hard pack in 40 degree heat at, in Indonesia maybe you've got um, Ling, Sand or Desert Martin on Sunday in the British Championship which is the complete opposite and maybe you don't ride from Indonesia to then so um, there is definitely a, obviously advantage of intensity and speed of riding GPs but mm-hmm. uh, if you could just focus on the British then I think that's that's a bigger advantage than riding GPs just a quick question then. You, you've mentioned the travelling. There, there is a lot of travelling involved. In a full season, you've got 20 GPs, yeah. lots of highways. How do you maintain your training regime when you've got that much time travelling? Well, people always ask, like, what's the hardest part about it? I would say travelling's one of the hardest parts. Um, people think, yeah, you just jump on a plane, you know, you're on the beach, you chill. I don't know, you go to a party... You do some riding on a Saturday, put a good time in. Uh, you go race on Sunday and you fly home. You know this is the, pro- the this is social media. You only see the good parts. But um, when you go um, from one GP to the next, sometimes you can't even ride in between because it's that. Like if, like I said, if you if we come back from Indonesia or one year to to Argentina, it took thirty six hours to get there. So. You're going all that way back in time difference. You're racing, completely destroying your body. Then you've got to get back on a plane 30-odd hours to fly back. And then you've got to race the next weekend, and then a race the next weekend. And this just carries on throughout the year. And, yeah, that, that, in my opinion, is a little bit why you see so many injuries because it's not like Formula 1 or MotoGP where they don't ride in between races. We have to still test and ride and in between so normally mm-hmm. in a season there's so many races for 11 months of the year we're we're flat out uh, pre-season then the whole season um yeah i ride probably once twice maximum in the week in between grand prix depending on where it is and that's why the winter is so important to be honest because if you get injured in the winter you just can't catch up you can't catch up to the you can't just keep racing every weekend and catch and catch up. It just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So winter's extremely important. If you get injured in winter, it's a massive, massive disadvantage. Um, but yeah, like I said, uh, yeah, it's impossible to catch up. And um, yeah. So is it important the then to, to get that base level of fitness before the season starts? Does that carry you through? 
Yeah, definitely. If you don't have that base level, you, and, and say if you got injured in the winter, but you you were ready just before the first Grand Prix, it would you'd be better missing the first five, six Grand Prix to to get ready for the season. It's it's in my situation. If if you're Jeffrey, of course, then you're going to go to the first Grand Prix because you you're you are the favourite for the World Championship. But you just can't you just can't catch up because you go from race to race to race and if you haven't got that base level of fitness you're not going to recover fast enough and you just by the time you get to 6th, 7th, 8th round you're going to be completely um, completely destroyed and you're not going to have any there's no time to to re- relax and get that time back so that's what that's that's why in my opinion motocross is the hardest sport because there's so many so many different variables different weather conditions climates the travel um, the sheer physical attributes that you need to be good at motocross how hard it is on your body the risk um yeah you can just keep the list keeps going on as as a lot of sports don't have that many variables um so yeah maybe i'm a bit biased because i'm a motocross rider but i can't think of a sport that's harder than motocross stefan everts always used to aim to peak physically um sort of end of july august time two-thirds through the season yeah does that make that sound about right? Um, I think I think now you need to peak a little bit earlier because when they was racing, there's there was a little bit less rounds. Um, but now you've got you've got twenty Grand Prix, and if you do a if you do a, a domestic championship as well, you've got another eight rounds. You've got like 28, 28 races to do on twenty eight weekends. So, um, I think you definitely don't want to be peaking at the start. But I would say. If you peak halfway through, then I'd say that's 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 roundabout right. So like yeah, like you said, June, June, maybe July, because you don't you don't wanna you don't wanna peak too early because then you know what it's like. The end of the year is important for contracts and and etc. So that's um, why this year it's going to be so hard to predict because with three GPs in a week at Latvia and Lommel, um, if you have a problem on week one yeah. tries to those three you're effectively going to miss two two three gps and that's you out yeah. it? it's it could go either way this year yeah it's one of them uh <laughs> one of them problems where hopefully you don't come into anything like that but yeah if you twisted your ankle for example and it's not really bad but you need a good week off to recover you just haven't got that time anymore so um it's definitely a challenge it's something none of us have experienced before so it'll be interesting to see how it works and um, I'm just excited to get to get back to it. I this I can't even remember what the airport looks like. It's been that long since I've been on a plane. Normally, I live in the place, so um, yeah, it, it can be a bit ridiculous. Like like last last year, we did ninety eight flights. Ninety eight. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh my god. Um, that's including like if you go to Argentina, you don't need to do free. So that's including stuff like that, but that. For me, last year was ninety eight. Wow! I lived in Holland, so as well, like when we had a weekend off, I was flying back. Um, mm-hmm. It's only forty five minute flight to Amsterdam to Manchester, so um, why not? But yeah, as you can imagine, if you do that many flights, you're absolutely sick of the airport. <laughs> so Argentina, just I mean, as a, going back to that, it's it's not the glamorous lifestyle. If you say to someone, oh yeah, I'm racing in Argentina next week, they think, oh, that's fantastic. No, like, like the place is unbelievable. Actually like, seen, 
How much yeah. do you see during that week? So <laughs> this is the thing. Okay, there you might see a little bit more because you might go on Tuesday, for example, and you get there Wednesday night. So then you've got Thursday um, and Friday if you haven't got too much media stuff to do. But yeah, you, nobody sees the 36 hours traveling there and then the getting an hour and a half in a taxi with all your kit bags everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then you get there and then the first thing you do is I'll oh, take a photo of the nice lake and you put that on your social media and everyone thinks, God, look, that's unbelievable, isn't it, racing there? But then I actually don't see that much. Like a normal Grand Prix, say, for example, Germany or Latvia or Sweden, we just fly Friday and fly home Sunday or Monday morning. So don't even you don't there is no time to look at anything. So you just you just go you fly you stay in a hotel you go to the motocross track and you fly home. It's not like you get to go on holiday or see anything. The only time you get to see something is maybe the Indonesia rounds because there's two rounds there. So you get you stay there the week in between. But other than that, yeah, you don't you don't get to sightsee or anything. But it's, it's better than a proper job, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Better than, yeah. better than, better than a normal job. Like, I couldn't have just stay in the same place all the time. But, um, yeah, I suppose I'm used to it. And, and uh, But, yeah, it's definitely not what everyone follows on social media. You just see the good parts, don't you? So, um, yeah, anyone who says motocross is an easy job, I always say, yeah, well, I'll swap you for the week and we'll, we'll see at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so moving forward um obviously you've been putting a lot of training in for the restart of the season um what's going to happen going forward what's what's your game plan as it were for the gps um so like i said it's my third grand prix back so we mm-hmm. haven't raced in such a long time so nothing too crazy mm-hmm. um i just want some solid results the first two rounds i had quite a lot of drama so um they didn't go anything like I wanted, so I just want two good starts, a good mm-hmm. Saturday. Oh, we haven't even got two. We haven't even got two days now, so a good Sunday morning, I guess, in time practice. I guess it's going to be, mm-hmm. and uh, two good starts, and I just want to um, yeah, enjoy riding and and be fighting as high up as I can. If that's tenth, it's tenth. If that's further back, it's further back. I just want to go there, do what I've been working on, and wherever I am, I am and. I will progress from there. I'm 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 not one of them people who say like I want I want to go and be tenth, you know, or something like that. I just I don't have really have any goals. I just I've worked hard. Mm-hmm. I believe in myself, and I go there, try my best, and wherever that is, that's it. That, that that's where it is. I I can go and improve on that. Um. But yeah, like I like, think it's not good though. There's there's um, passing opportunities there, aren't there? Yeah, Latvia is one of my favourite tracks. I I really like that place, so I'm I'm really happy that there's three rounds there and there's three rounds in Lommel because they're two really good tracks for me. So, um, I can't complain at that. And and uh, yeah, I'm just excited to get back racing. I think I, it'll feel back. No, will feel normal again then. Um, mm-hmm. Like this is this during lockdown and stuff. So the complete couldn't be any more opposite of what I'm used to. So been it's been really weird and strange to be honest but um it's nice to be able to have a date now where we are back racing and and uh excited to excited to get going 
Roger, do you reckon we should jump onto the Q&As? I think it's that time. <laughs> now, we've only had a two or three sent in this week over Facebook um, and Instagram. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a couple of them we've probably already touched on earlier on in the podcast. Um, but this one was sent in on Instagram and it was, what is your favourite career moment and why? Um, yeah, I get asked that question. Um <laughs> I'll I'll give you two because I think the obvious one is the nations. Um, I just don't see unless unless I get on the nations team in Matley and we get on the podium or we win a nations or something. I don't I don't see something being better than that. Um, the whole experience, not just the racing and because where we finished, just mm-hmm. the whole experience of the nations is unbelievable. Um, mm-hmm. Second highlight would probably be winning the British Championship because of what we went what we went through before earlier on the podcast what I went through to to win it and, and it's been a goal of mine uh since I ever started watching racing so um I'd definitely say them too okay um moving forward I mean this is a little bit of a strange year um so what's more realistically uh what are your goals for 2021 um so after uh, hopefully I get a good solid solid year this year and uh, yeah, I'd like to be back in MXGP and uh, be more up sharp. And uh, I know I've got the speed. I know I can do it. Um, just getting the package right. And uh, yeah, solid winter. And yeah, good starts. You need good starts in MXGP. If you don't get good starts, then you're you're uh, <laughs> you, you might it, it makes your life so much harder. Um, so yeah, like I said before, I don't set goals, but um, it'll definitely be to. It's not my rookie. It won't be my rookie year anymore. So I would be looking to be more up the sharp end and and uh, yeah, a podium in MXGP would be unbelievable to make up for the ones I missed in MX2. You you say good starts. Um, that's going back a few years in the, in the 450 class when it was MX1 or whatever. You could pretty much not get a start and then work your way into a race 10 minutes in. A lot of riders used to do that. Now, it's not like that. You've got to be on it right from the start. Yeah, because the depth the depth is too is too much. Like in, in Matley this year, I had last gate pick, terrible start. Um, in, the se- in the second motor, I come from last to 19th. Um, when I... Like with like five, six, seven minutes to go, I come over the finish jump and I'm like, right, 19th, who's in front of me? There was Van Horby, Jassaconis, Tonus, just in a line in front of me. And when, you, when you've got to try and pass them guys for 17th, 18th, 16th place, it's just, it, <laughs> they're extremely good riders. The next, the next weekend in Volkswagen, Jassaconis won the qualifying race and got on the podium. So it's the depth in the MXGP class is that, is that much that if you don't get a good start, it, it it's difficult to pass them people. There's only a few people in that class like who have got the speed to go from the back to the front and what potentially only two or three, in my opinion. So if you don't get a good start, then you're, you're kind of, unless you're having a blinding race, struggling to go forward. I know I've spoken to riders in the past and they've said the intensity mid-pack from sort of 12th down is way more than if you're in the top 10. Yeah, because 
as well, I noticed in the MXGP class, you're fight you're fighting with real men, if you wish, like who have been around the sport a long time. They're very clever, got so much experience. Like when you're trying to race people like Van Horbeek, you can't just because I'm a bigger guy or whatever. You can't just muscle them out of the way or or trick them with with a pass or they already see it coming. So the the roost as well in the 450 class is something something <laughs> else. Um, as like in MX2, you, when I'm 22, you know, go 23, and you've got you've got a lot of younger riders in MX2 that are inexperienced, you can kind of go from the back t- towards the front or use your strength and size a little bit. But in MXGP, it just doesn't work. It just it, it, It's just not possible. There we go. So going on to uh, question three. This is another Instagram question. This one is probably going to be a little bit difficult. Um, what do you prefer, KTM or Kawasaki? <laughs> oh, no. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah. Whichever, whichever pays most. Yeah, uh, KTM. <laughs> uh, I do get asked this question quite a lot, so I'm, I will answer it honestly. Um, Kawasaki is a, v- a very good 250 bike, mm-hmm. um, especially the ones from F and H. Uh, I had a really good bike last year. It handles really well. and uh, But yeah, the dominance of KTM. I, I had four years on KTM with Steve. Mm-hmm. And I uh, really loved the bike then. I've jumped straight back on now. I feel at home. And um, I think the results over the last five, six, seven years of KTM um, prove something. And uh, yeah, I, I would have to say KTM on that on that front. Did you find there was a, a huge difference when you, you tried both the bikes, going from one to the other? Um, so... I will I will explain it from when I went from KTM to Kawasaki because um, I now went from Kawasaki 250 to KTM 450. So mm-hmm. obviously the power is a big difference there. But when I went from KTM originally to Kawasaki, the first thing I noticed was it did handle a lot better in the corners. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know this was quite a while ago and KTM haven't proved that since. Um, but obviously the Kawasaki lacks on power where the KTM doesn't. So mm-hmm. there's definitely pros and cons. And uh, I just think, like at Kawasaki, you have to spend so much more time and effort to get the bike as fast mm-hmm. as a, as a standard KTM. So then, if you spend the same amount of time on a KTM as you did with a Kawasaki, for example, then I think I think you just have more power anyway. Mm-hmm. But both very good bikes. I enjoyed riding both. I had my most successful season I've ever had on a on a Kawasaki. So um, yeah, I have no complaints about the bike and. I'm happy to be back on KTM and yeah, excited to get back racing. There we go. Um, Rod, do you want to add any more questions in before we do the outro? Or you did? Uh, not really, no. I'm, I'm just looking forward to the same as everybody else to, um, what is it, three weeks time now to Latvia. Um, and then, you know, all the uh, all the talking comes to an end because we get out on track and with that, mm. we see who's who's ready and who's not and i'm sure adam after the long long wait you can't wait to get back out on that start line yeah sure i like i said before um good track for me so um just hope everybody watches it and enjoys watching the racing again hopefully with it not being on for the tv for so long i hope um people don't complain as much and they 
sign up to MXGPTV and and support the sport and uh, and Eurosport. Yeah, and Eurosport. <laughs> How could I forget that? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, to support the, support the sport, support the riders, and uh, yeah, enjoy watching live motocross again. Well, I'm sure we'll be both tuned in, Roger. I know you'll be um, chatting away at some of the meetings. I'm sure. Uh, hopefully, yeah. I'm just waiting on confirmation. That's that's the problem with the with the schedule keep changing, then uh, it's throwing everyone into a bit of confusion. But hopefully, it's all slotting into place now. Well, fingers crossed. Um, Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, no problem. It's been a pleasure. I've. Uh... <laughs> an hour and a half that actually has gone really fast so um, it's been good to speak to you and yeah give my opinion on things and um, it's not something I do over the internet that much like on on a post or anything so it's mm-hmm. nice to actually speak about it and um, yeah hopefully some people have took something away or enjoyed listening to it so thanks for having me Perfect. Well, Roger, thank you again for joining us. I know it's probably given you something a bit more to do this week rather than crashing your mountain bikes that you have been doing. Oh, you're not going to let me forget that, are you? Have you not heard? The rest of the world has, apparently. No, no, right. What did you do? Uh, I, I tried to go at the same speed as all the local hot shots at our local mountain bike park. And it was, where, where is your local mountain bike park, actually? Uh, Queen Elizabeth Country Park in uh, Hampshire. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Somehow ended up going down the Black Roots, which was a mistake. <laughs> uh, so uh, I had a big crash, which would have been fine um, if it hadn't happened in front of a big group of people who were watching. So. Oh yeah, that's always the worst. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I am your typical all the gear, no idea. I'm afraid. Are you on the e-bike hype or you've not gone there yet? Well, it's because I'm so old. I have to be on an e-bike. Oh, you are on an e-bike. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> you're the one of them that blast past me going up the hills and, and then yeah. on the downhills, you're, you, you, you hold me up. Okay, it's it's the it. future, mate. It's the future. Definitely. <laughs> you get that. I, I live North Wales. There's loads of mountain biking places. You get some people who come flying up the hills and then down the hills, I catch them back up. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, the downhill's the best bit. I've just worked so hard to go up there to go down the downhill. Now I can't go down the downhill fast. Well, I'm never sure what the <laughs> etiquette is when you're going uphill. You know, when you go past somebody who's on a normal bike, and do you sort of sit behind them or do you say, excuse me? Nah, do you blast back past? Yeah. Yeah. I would if I was on an e-bike, so... Just because I, I can. Yeah, just get it in turbo <laughs> and... Well, they're going to they're gonna catch me up on the downhill, as you said, so that's no problem, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, make sure you stay safe this week, Roger. Um, once again, that rounds up uh, episode 16 of the Live Motocross podcast. He's a flying by each week now. Um, make sure you tune in to iTunes, Acast, Spotify. Uh, in the next few weeks, we'll have the episodes on YouTube so you can tune in and listen to wherever you get your podcasts. But in the meantime, uh, make sure you subscribe and we shall see you on next week's episode. No